the first thing I would think about is what is it you're trying to impact? Is it your whole practice? Is it a subset? And then what do you need to do from a data perspective, from a systems perspective, from a people perspective, from an analytics perspective to try to make that happen? Set something up, run it, score it, see if you made a difference, and if you didn't, change it. Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive via original or value-added, digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. And welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer-co-host of Pop Health Week. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague, and lead co-host, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. Today's show is a special edition, if you will, of Pop Health Week, where the aforementioned Fred Goldstein is the subject matter expert in the box, and it is my privilege and opportunity to extract key insights from his considerable range, depth, and experience in the space. We've been producing, Fred and I have been producing this podcast series now for over six years. We kicked it up in 2015, and we've generated a tremendous amount of content, and our relationship with our syndication partner in healthcare, now Radio, has been great amplifying that message. And we're coming at it from a point of view of population health. Fred's usually the lead guy in this conversation with our guests, and we've talked to plenty top-level people in the space over these years, from deans of colleges and medical school to entrepreneurs launching companies to nameplates in the health system and health plan world. We've pretty much covered the base in in population health, but what many of you may not know, in case you're not paying very close attention to some of Fred's narrative, Fred's a healthcare subject matter expert in population health. So, Fred, we don't generally dive into that, but why don't you give our audience a sense of your career trajectory, uh, where you launched, and then ultimately how you found your way into what was in the disease management industry that's now been retooled and hopefully upgraded to what we're calling population health management. So tell us a little bit about that history and that glide path. Yeah, well, thanks, Greg, for that introduction, obviously. And you and I, you've got 30 plus years in healthcare too. And I think that's what's made this show dynamic because as many people may not know, we communicate on the backside as we talk with our various guests on the show. And I get input from you on what we should be talking about and where to take the conversation. And it's really made a a dynamic duo. In terms of my background, I originally did not plan to go into healthcare, although I grew up in the industry. My father was a professor of medicine at uh, UC Davis and KU. And I used to work in his lab actually in high school doing air pollution research but I didn't want to be a physician I wanted to study sharks so I I went into that field and got a zoology degree but I spent a summer at the shark research lab in the United States which was fantastic lived on a boat at the dock here in Florida and found that there were no careers the the head of the lab actually pulled me aside at the end of the internship and said Fred you need to find something else there's no money left anymore for research. The Navy has pulled out and uh, you should find something else. So I did and I decided to ultimately go into healthcare, thinking I could take my science background into that and help with better decision making with new technologies and things like that. And got a master's in healthcare administration and went right into the hospital business, running general med surge hospitals for a company back in the day called Republic. And not only did I run some hospitals for them in California and in Texas, 
but I also helped install the first DRG management systems and worked for the regional uh, VP of finance doing analytics on hospitals. I ultimately left Republic and went to Charter Medical, and that was really an interesting career choice for me because although moving to behavioral health was definitely in the healthcare system considered a step back from being a med surge hospital administrator, it introduced me to the entire behavioral health field. And I began to realize just how important that was and was able to then integrate that expertise later. I then left business to run a startup that was a Medicaid plan, which was really another fascinating change and learned about managed care. We then got a commercial license at that health plan. We got a Medicare demonstration project, the health plan rated the highest quality health plan in the state of Florida. And ultimately that health plan was acquired by Coventry about 15 months after I joined. And I stayed on with Coventry for about another oh, 18 months. And I then had this wild idea of founding an HIV HMO for Medicaid patients. My father was an HIV physician, very active in that since the disease first began out on the West Coast or was identified. And I thought, wow, I'm seeing people who could be doing better. Why is that? And so I approached the state of Florida to do an HIV HMO, my first really push into some politics, and they wanted to do it, which just blew my mind. So they actually introduced legislation in 1997 to do a Medicaid HMO here in Florida for HIV patients. They pulled that legislation and introduced disease management and said to me, Fred, go set up a disease management company. So I said, sure, I can do that and pivoted again. We had done an asthma and a maternity program at the HMO, which were early on in the mid nineties. And so I set up an approach reading a lot of people's stuff on how to build a disease management company from scratch. Essentially, we were awarded the HIV project with a group out of California called AHF, and they continue on with that project now. Then added to, the, to that work, I built programs for another nine conditions and ended, do, ended up doing 10 state Medicaid programs for uh, disease management. And we used a community-based model without a call center, and I also partnered with McKesson and their big health solutions division. And we did eight of those 10 states with McKesson where they had the call center and I had the on the ground staff. We ventured into some new areas. We did the first program for persons with schizophrenia in Medicaid. We also did a program for high risk maternity in the Mississippi Delta. And also that taught me all about social deterrence of health, which I didn't know what they were until a few years ago when the term really got out. I used to say people can't focus on their health because their life gets in the way. So let's focus on their life. And we would have our nurses and our community resource coordinators or promotoras focus on transportation, getting a bassinet so a mother could, wouldn't sleep with their baby, helping them get their prescriptions, who's going to watch the kids, all of those issues. How do you get food to these folks? And uh, we worked on all of those, and it was really a great experience. So I spent 15 years with a company I founded called Specialty Disease Management Services, 10 years as that company and then merged it into an employee health improvement company called U.S. Preventive Medicine. So it's been a windy road, but it's crossed a lot of different sides of the healthcare system, which, as you recognize, gives us different lenses into the problem. And, uh, and been involved in population health, as you talked about now, for really you know over two decades, if you consider the disease management experience. And so that's really allowed me to look at these problems and say, how do we go about trying to solve them in an efficient and effective way, understanding the health plan's role, the hospital's role, the physician's role, the pharmaceutical manufacturer's role, all of those pieces. Great. So general acute care hospital administrator for a proprietary hospital company to behavioral health administrator for, again, a proprietary hospital company, Charter Medical. 
to then focusing on AIDS into a Medicaid population, which then sort of transitioned you into what then became essentially disease management 1.0. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. And so essentially, I, I developed a framework back then to do the programs and some software and then just applied the different conditions and pushed not push them, but brought them into that framework. So we could say, okay, we did asthma. Now, how would we do diabetes? How would we do persons with schizophrenia, et cetera? And, and uh, that was really the key to then rolling those out very successfully. The other advantage as a learning experience in terms of it was if you do Medicaid, it's a whole lot easier to do commercial. You know, we had employer contracts with the city of Tempe or um, Orlando County Libraries as well doing disease management, but that was very similar. But again, people are people, and it doesn't matter if it's a Medicaid beneficiary or a commercial health plan. All people struggle with similar issues, and the question is, how do you solve those for them? So let me clarify. So you're saying if you develop CHOPs, if you will, in Medicaid, then you had essentially portfolio to leverage into commercial, or is it just an easier population at the commercial level than it is in Medicaid? I think overall, it's probably a little bit easier because because obviously with the, with the Medicaid population, you're dealing with deeper levels of social determinants of health that are impacting these individuals. Although I will say this, if you consider an employer group, and for example, one of our clients was a big resort. They have gardeners, housekeepers, cooks, all of those individuals also live within a lower socioeconomic grouping and suffer from similar issues that, or barriers that they're trying to overcome. Whether it was, we have one car, but somebody needs to be somewhere else. How do I get my prescription or, or get to the doctor? All of those things go on as well. So there is, there's certainly more overlap than many people who serve the commercial market recognize. So maybe higher acuity type case mix? You'll certainly see higher acuity sometimes, obviously, later access to care, further along in the disease progression, less access to resources. And there's some clear examples that we had of how some of these social determinants impact individuals. So for example, in the Persons with Schizophrenia program in the state of Colorado, the state recognized it was a major problem back in the day. The, the, the non-emergency transportation companies were typically the taxis or stuff like that. And they were taking states to the cleaners by, for example, picking somebody up and taking a super long route to get there. So you began to see other players come in like a logistic care that capitated the, the, uh, the transportation for a state. But the state of Colorado didn't have that. And they noticed this fraud. And they said, we're going to just do this. We're going to require every patient who needs transport to get that by their doctor, approved by their doctor, and the doctor has to order it. Well, we recognize that for our population of persons with schizophrenia, that was probably less likely to happen. Sure enough, within two months of the state implementing that, we saw a huge increase in visits to the ER, missed appointments, and we quickly took that data back to the state, and they exempted the population from that transportation requirement so that these people could then get to their appointments and not suffer from uh, that change in policy. A clearly a measurable outcome by way of benefit of the program. So let's, I want to talk about what's happening now, but, but let, before we transition to that, give me a sense of what's the basic chassis of pre-population health industry 
as disease management. What's that chassis? Strip it down and then let's bring it forward into maybe iterations one and two of the current state of the art in population health. Yeah, so if you think about early on, it was, okay, we're going to identify these individuals with some sort of a claims process, looking for ICD codes or something like that, ICD-9 the day, now ICD-10, or the use of certain pharmaceuticals or a physician referral or maybe a self-referral. And then we're going to use some, at that time, fairly limited assessment tools. You know, they may risk stratify based on cost, or if you had one admission or two ER visits in the last 12 months, oh, we're gonna say you're a high-risk patient, which actually is not a very good way to go about doing this. It was very simplistic approaches, but they were a start. And then obviously your interventions were mostly telephonic, you know, uh, we, although we did face-to-face and, and quite a bit of it, um, that obviously requires a higher ratio of staff, and, uh, and we also coordinated a lot broader services in the typical program that may say, well, I'm going to remind them to get a flu shot and they'll go to their appointment. We were doing much broader stuff. We didn't just send a packet and then call them in three months. And were these typically RN case managers? or? Yeah, we typically used registered nurses. And then we had what we called community resource coordinators who did a lot of the setup of the appointments, they would go out and see how people were doing. They could arrange for some of the non-clinical kinds of things. And we actually were proud to say we hired the first certified promotoras in the state of Texas when we were doing Texas Medicaid. And, and those individuals obviously are lay health workers that can go out into the community and, and are well recognized and received by their communities they live in. So yeah, it was mostly a clinical staff combined with these community resource coordinators. We did not run a big call center, but on the projects, the big ones we do with McKesson, they had a large call center. And we would take the higher risk patients. And if you're just tuning in to Pop Health Week, my guest is industry veteran, colleague, partner, and friend, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health LLC and lead co-host of Pop Health Week. And were you typically accepting a subcapitation or what was the funding mechanism? The funding mechanisms originally were per member per month fees. And, you know, they could vary quite a bit depending on which disease state. You know, if you're doing a program for... Um, say, persons with schizophrenia, your ratios of staff to patients are much higher. So obviously, you'd have a higher per member per month fee than, say, a program for persons living with asthma or diabetes. And just not maybe necessarily unique to your experience, but let's say back then, what was the typical, shall we say, discounting of uh, disease management 1.0 in terms of its impact and contribution to better care at lower cost? So a lot of the programs back then, and particularly, you know, Medicare did a big demo project back in the mid-2000s and had these huge launch, and none of their programs actually worked. It turns out, as you look at this, one, measurement used back in the day was probably not appropriate, and there are still questions about measurement today. People like Al Lewis talk about that all the time, and uh, that's why you have things like the Validation Institute. And also, it's a whole lot easier to move process measures and to move indicators than it is to save money. So you can get more people to get their flu shots or their annual eye exam or a colonoscopy um, or a foot exam for a person with diabetes than it is to actually lower the costs of care. And that's where it got tricky. So for example, we did a program, that program for persons with schizophrenia in the state of Colorado, actually reduced ER visits 54%, reduced hospitalizations 2%, 
but we made a fundamental error. The drugs at that time, the atypical antipsychotics had just come out. They were really expensive, maybe $400 a month. They were the number one cost for Medicaid. And we were able to increase the adherence rates from 23 or 24 day fill rates per month to 29. So essentially early on, they were missing three prescriptions a year, about 84 days a year of, of fill of, their, of these medications. We increased that to 29 days. And so the increased costs of the pharmaceuticals, appropriate utilization, which resulted in the decreased utilization, actually offset the savings and the program didn't save any money net. And so, uh, you know, the state was looking for one thing, which was, did it save us money? And it didn't. It improved the health of these patients considerably in the members, but, but um, that program actually was canceled because it didn't save money. Right. So, okay, so let's say that's a sort of a generic uh, limit of the V1 model per se. Yeah. So now from, from that point to, to today, where we're, I don't know how many iterations in population health we can be considered to be technology-wise, chassis-wise, impact outcome-wise, but between then and now, it seems to me, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Affordable Care Act gets passed, ACOs get introduced, lots of conversation about population level accountability from an ACO perspective and so on and so forth. That kind of gave rise to then, was it Kendig who popularized uh, the idea of population health? But at some point there was this bridge. Talk about that. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, Dr. Kendig actually wrote the seminal paper with a co-author, and I'm blanking on his name, my apologies, that said, you know, here is, um, this is my definition of population health. And it really was, you know, a, a fairly broad definition that it's the health of, of a population and the status within the group and the change of that status over time. So are they getting healthier? Are they getting sicker? Or those kinds of things. And as disease management came into place and the others did, suddenly population health became the thing, you know. It's part of the triple aim, and it's actually one of the legs of the triple aim, improve the health of populations. And I think there's an important reason to understand why. Everybody talks about precision medicine, and precision medicine is critical. But precision medicine is nothing more than the appropriate survey or information needed to know what that patient as an individual needs. But if you don't improve the overall group's health, but you've improved one patient, you really haven't made a difference because three others may have gotten worse. So that's why you want to look at it in an overall basis while recognizing you change populations one person at a time. And, and as you said, we've added a lot of technology. We've added a lot of things to it. But it's still the same fundamental steps. Select your population, survey them or gather the data on it, specify where they are in that risk levels, then you really need to, and this is an area I talk about a, a bit that I think people don't look at the same way quite, is you need to sell this program to people. Healthcare now is really beginning to recognize we need to sell. I mean, pharma's on TV, you're seeing hospitals on TV, everybody's selling, but we don't talk about it. We talk about, oh, we want to engage them, we want to get this and that. It's really about selling. That selling get is what gets done. We know companies know how to sell stuff. We need to get that into healthcare to get them to buy or to do these products, then solve their problems, score it, straighten them out, and start again. It's these series of steps that are still the same, and it's really about execution at the end of the day. And so today, we have all this stuff out there, but it may not be executed against right. And I think that's one of the fundamental issues. Segment the population. So that, that you know, segment them, 
uh, assess, restratify, and then design around the, the care needs from a continuum of care point of view. So, you know, the first um, cut at, at population health could be the health plan, you know, the general membership in the health plan, or it could be a subset of the general membership based on the disease commonality uh, and so forth. And then the orientation needs to be, okay, given that population, given their risk, given this continuum of care, here, what, here's what the intervention looks like, you know, from acute to subacute to ultimately exiting the program because they don't need it anymore. Is that what we're seeing now in terms of population health management, or is this aspirational? Well, I think some places do it. And, and, and also another point to be made is there's some people that you exit out of the program. That tends to be more of a case management approach. You case manage them during that condition, and then that condition is over, they've had their surgery, and out they go. Whereas other people, it's for their life. It's a chronic illness. It's, a, you know, it's diabetes or something where you're going to be managing or assisting them throughout their life. Even if they get low level, you want to still have some sort of an ability to understand what's going on with a, a low-risk individual and potentially impact it so they don't move up, so they don't become meter or high risk because you left them alone. So here's where I would assume the tools of today, digital, apps, so forth, platforms, uh, are the value adds to, to what was available back during the disease management days. So is, is that correct? Is this tech enabled? Is it workflow yeah. optimization and outcomes achievement? It's, it's, it's all of that, which is a great way to look at it, Greg, because you've got all of this tech out there which I think about when I was doing my programs, we had this face-to-face -face stuff with a cell phone. Although we did some, the first in-home monitoring in Medicaid back in 2003. This, but this tech has got to be integrated. It's a problem we've talked about forever, is how do you integrate this stuff? Integrate the tech. How do you integrate the program into your health plan, to the doctors, to the hospital, to the home health company? And how do you create that so you actually have a system that functions and executes like you would hope? And that's what I remember when I toured the digital health pavilion at the CES early on, can't remember the year, but it was the rollout of MD Live, Optum had their, everyone had their sort of row of intellectual property that makes this stuff work. And I kept saying, I remember posing this question to Randy Parker, who was then the CEO at MD Live, and I said, I said, well, we're a virtual health plan. And I said, and do you nest with or integrate to the health plans of the world? Or are you sort of the separate parallel universe? <laughs> and at the time, it was a separate parallel universe. But today, 2021, now we're hearing about, for instance, Headspace just IPO'd. Headspace is now coming out and they're fully integrating with, you know, bricks and sticks of mental health care. So the tech and the workflow of the professionals is now meshing in a way that was theoretical, you know, at CES 2011. And, and now we're seeing more and more of that. So can you speak to that from a population health perspective? Yeah, I think the ideas you talk about in this integration is, is critical. And, and what you point out is interesting because there's always this hype cycle. And, uh, and we saw it, you probably remember too, when we walked around HIMSS and every single booth said, we do population health, <laughs> you know? Well, you yeah. do a piece of population health. Right. You know, MD Live is a piece of a, of a health system. Right. And so that really is 
the holy grail is how do we how do we integrate yeah. we're, we're, we're still struggling to integrate behavioral and medical right we're still struggling to integrate right. this emr with that emr your your pha forum in 2014 was uh was the guy from the kennedy foundation talking about the mental health parity and it was like right in sight and we're going to finally have elevation of mental health with general acute care and we're still struggling today we're still struggling and patrick kennedy as you point out with the kennedy forum talked about it back then well we've got the mental health parity act you've got to treat it the same and we're still struggling with that it's really a massive problem and so when people think oh it's easy to do a population health program it really does require a fair amount of expertise because yeah you need data you need the right data but data isn't the solution you need behavior change you need staffing ratios you need the expertise you need to figure out how are you going to integrate which problems are impactable what can you actually do something about it doesn't do any good to go grab a bunch of data about social determinants of health if you're not going to do anything about it you're just going to load extra work on your staff who are then going to say God, this is stressing me out. I know that person needs that, but I don't have any place to send them. And so you see some of that going on today. And according to our friend and colleague, uh, David Nash, he's saying there's an industry that has now burgeoned out called the social determinants of health industry. So let, let's sort of wind down here. And I want to ask you this, for those who's grappling with the strategy, whether it's a health plan, health system, medical group, physician network, or even a tech uh, aspirant, what would be your guidance on how to boot this? What, what are maybe steps one, three, or whatever they are? What would you be recommending that they think about first? And I know you're a fan of execution. Talk about that glide path. The first thing I would think about is what is it you're trying to impact? Is it your whole practice? Is it a subset? And then what do you need to do from a data perspective, from a systems perspective, from a people perspective, from an analytics perspective? to try to make that happen. Set something up, run it, score it, see if you made a difference, and if you didn't, change it. Do something else. One of the biggest problems I see is, I remember talking to an ACO that said, we have a diabetes program. I said, really, tell me about it. Well, we have about 8,000 people identified. Well, that's fantastic. How many care managers do you have? We have one. <laughs> you're not going to move a five pound brick with four pounds of force it just ain't going to happen and 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 i see that a lot it is something that or another place i went to where the cmo honestly said i really need 35 more care managers if we want to solve this problem and uh and that's that's going to take some time to work through so I, I would really look at it and say what is it you want to do what is it you actually can do and, and look at it that way. And speaking of can-do, I mean, what are the typical challenges getting your arms around the social determinants of health? Um, from my perspective, the, the biggest issue is that the healthcare system and the health plans need to consider is, am I really the right one to try to solve this? Should it be me? At the end of the day, as we've talked about, somebody needs to be accountable. And if you don't have somebody accountable, it's not going it's, to, it's just not going to, it's going to flounder. So it's really about if I'm going to tackle social determinants of health, what's my role? Am I just going to pay for that service or am I going to try to manage that service, provide that service? And that's where I think it gets tricky. Uh, it really needs to be, the funds need to go to those organizations that really know how to do this versus the healthcare system that should really be focusing on the triple aim of the cost, quality, 
outcomes, you know, and satisfaction. And to your knowledge, who's hitting all three of those? Uh, today, uh, I have not seen costs dropping. So I used to always like to talk about the two-legged stool because the third leg does not seem to be a major focus at this time. And that is the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank my partner and lead co-host for his time and insights today. For more information on Fred's work, go to www.accountablehealthllc.com and follow him on Twitter via at FS Goldstein. And if you're enjoying our work here at Pop Health Week, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast platform of your choice and follow us on Twitter via at Pop Health Week. And finally, if you're in the market for private label thought leadership branded podcasts or video content, whether streaming or on demand, that amplifies your company organization or enterprise value proposition, do ping me via Greg, that's G-R-E-G-G, at healthinnovationmedia.com and consider following me on Twitter via at Greg Masters MPH. Check out the recent launch of the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy or AMCP podcast series powered by Pop Health Week at www.amcp.org forward slash podcast with an introduction by Susan Cantrell, its chief executive officer. Bye now. Bye now.